The recording that you're about to listen to is a talk from the City Bible Forum. We would appreciate you respecting our copyright by not making copies of this talk or altering the content in any way. We hope that you find the material beneficial. If you would like more information on the City Bible Forum, you can visit us on the web at citybibleforum.org. Well, let's have a look at what it is that Jesus says uh, in Luke chapter 13. I'll read uh, this part of the Bible and then invite Sam to come and speak to us. Luke chapter 13. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died in the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard and he went to look for fruit on it, but didn't find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? So the man replied, Leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilise it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Sam. So there's the SMS number. It'll be on the bottom of the screen regularly. Well, every year, my family and I go to Tartra on the south coast for our family holiday. And there my boys play at the beach. I like to go for a surf. And one night I went for a surf at Tartra Beach. The sun was setting and I was out there by myself on my board. And then I saw it. A big black shiny fin sticking out of the water. And a dark shadow started to come straight at me. Da-da, 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 da-da. And the shadow kept coming and coming and then it went underneath me. And that's when I saw it was a dolphin and not a shark. And my first reaction was going, whoa, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for protecting me. But on that same beach, just a few years earlier, a woman went out for an early morning swim with her husband and friends, and a shark did kill that woman. So where was God on that day? And on that very same beach, a local father was fishing on the wharf with his two sons, aged four and one. And while he was fishing, the sons fell into the water... And the father jumped in to save them, and all three drowned. Where was God on that day? Why does God let bad things happen to good people? Well, welcome again to the forum. We're kicking off a four-part series called If God is So Loving, Why? And our four questions are these. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why are religious people jerks? Why doesn't God make himself more obvious? And why is there only one way to God? And in this series, we'll look at each of these questions one by one, and we'll see what the Bible says, particularly what Luke 13 says to our questions. And today is question number one, week one, why do bad things happen to good people? And we just heard a story from Luke 13, inside our outline there, and people come up to Jesus, 
and they ask him about two recent tragedies. Tragedy number one, some local Galileans were massacred by the Romans led by Pilate. Well, what was all that about? Tragedy number two, what about the tower that fell in the country of Siloam and many died? What was all that about? Were these events a judgment from God because these people were bad people? Well, Jesus says, no, it wasn't because of that. But if not, why? In other words, our question to Jesus should be this. Why do bad things happen to good people? So we're going to answer this. And in your outline, see, there'll be three parts to our talk today. In part one, we'll look at why this is a problem if you believe in the Christian God. In the middle part of the talk, why this is a problem if you don't believe in the Christian God. And finally, why this might, uh, what might be an answer for all of us. So again, it'll be a 20-minute talk. You can ask questions through SMSing or put your hand up at the end, and I'll try to answer the questions at the end. So let's come to the first part of the talk. Why this is a problem if you believe in the Christian God. So let's say you're a Christian. So you believe in the God of the Bible, and the God of the Bible is supposed to be loving and powerful. And just like the people ask Jesus about the Galileans who were massacred by Pilate, and the people in Siloam who were killed by a tower, someone might ask you similar questions. Maybe you've got a friend called Jane, and Jane says, my sister has just been diagnosed with cancer, and the doctors give her only one week to live. Why? Why did God let this happen? Or maybe you've got a friend called John, and John says, well, my brother was just hit and killed by a drunk driver. Why? Why did God let this happen? Or maybe you turn on the news, you remember about 10 years ago, a tsunami hit Indonesia and other Asian countries, and 300,000 people died. Babies, children, grandparents, mothers. Why? Well, what are you going to say if you're a Christian? If you believe in the God of the Bible, what are you going to say? Well, typically Christians have gone for two traditional options. Traditional option number one is called the free will defence. And the free will defence goes like this. When God made the world, it was originally good. But he gave us, he had to give us a free choice. Otherwise we'd be just robots or puppy dogs. But we used, we used our free choice to choose evil instead of good. And that's why the world is messed up now. Now the problem with the free will defence is this. If you try saying this to your friend Jane, she's going to say, you're kidding. You're kidding, aren't you? Are you saying my sister chose to get cancer? Or that she's more sinful than those who don't get cancer? Your friend John is going to say to you, you're kidding. You're kidding. Are you saying my brother chose to get hit by a drunk driver? And if it's because of sin, shouldn't the drunk driver be the one that's dead now? And the people in Indonesia are going to say to you, you're kidding. Are you saying that 300,000 people died because they chose to get hit by a tsunami? Or that they're more sinful than us? That's why it might not be such a good answer. And Jesus basically says the same thing. This is what Jesus says in his answer. Jesus answered, Do you think that those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no, they weren't worse sinners. Or those 18 who died when the town Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. Jesus warns us this isn't the answer. We can't say that bad things happen because we're bad. Now, by and large, we might be able to use this simple formula in life. If we do bad things, 
bad things might happen. We might be able to use this simple formula. And we can see how this works. If I don't exercise, I might get a heart attack. If I play on the street, I might get hit by a car. If I'm a jerk, my marriage might break up. So we can see how this formula by and large works in life. But the Bible and Jesus are warning us that we can't flip it around and reverse the form and say, if bad things happen, we did something bad. See, using this formula, which is wrong, I could say, well, if I got a heart attack, well, it must be my fault. No, there could be some other reason. If I get hit by a car, well, it must be my fault. No, there might be some other reason. If my marriage breaks up, it must be my fault. No, there might be some other reason. So Jesus and the Bible are saying, bah, we can't use this formula in life. We can't say that bad things happen because we did something bad. Well, traditional option number two for a Christian there might be this. God is working good out of bad. And this argument goes like this. God gives us lemons, but then he makes lemonade out of our lemons. God is working good out of bad. And your friend Jane is going to say, you're kidding. What good can there be for my sister? She's going to be dead in one week. John is going to say, you're kidding. What good can there be for my brother? He's dead. And the people of Indonesia will say, what good? There are 300,000 people dead. This makes God out to be a monster. So you can see, if you're a Christian, and you, if you believe in the Christian, loving, powerful God, this is not an easy problem to explain away. And now let me show you how you even got a harder problem than what you originally thought, if you're a Christian. You've got what philosophers call the magnitude problem. The magnitude problem. Not just that there's suffering or bad things happening, but there's so much, too much suffering. Jamie's going to say, why cancer for my sister? Why not a head cold? That wouldn't be enough. If God was trying to make good happen out of bad, a head cold. And John's going to say, why did my brother have to be killed? If God was trying to work good out of bad, a broken arm would be enough, not dead. And the people in Indonesia will say, why 300,000 people dead? There's a magnitude problem. Not just that there's suffering, but there's too much suffering. And then another problem is the suffering is indiscriminate. It's not just suffering, it's unfair. It's unfair, indiscriminate suffering. Jane will say, why my sister? Why does she be, have to be the one to get cancer? Why not the meth dealer? John will say, why my brother? Why not the drunk driver? He should have died. And the people in Indonesia, why children, babies, mothers, grandparents? Why them? Suffering is indiscriminate. So here's the problem. If you're a Christian, if you believe in the God of the Bible who is loving and powerful, you are trying to juggle four things to be true. Number one... Bad things happen, and they don't just happen, there's too much. There's a magnitude problem. Number two, it's unfair. It's indiscriminate. But number three, you believe God is loving. And number four, you believe God is powerful. Now, this is only a problem if you're a Christian, if you believe in a loving, powerful God of the Bible. But if you're not a Christian, you don't have this problem because you're not obligated to believe these four things. You're, you're free to remove any one of those things to solve your problem if you don't believe in the Christian God. But if you don't believe in the Christian God, you're going to find you've got another problem. And this comes to the middle part of the talk now. Why this is a problem if you choose not to believe in the Christian God. And if you choose not to believe in the Christian God, you've got at least these four solutions. 
Number one, bad things happen. You can say, well, I'm going to remove that one from the equation. I'm going to change it to, well, there is no such thing as good or bad. There is no bad. Just, uh, so there's no such thing as good or bad. But what about my pain, my hurt, my suffering, you might say? Well, the answer is, it's all just an illusion. Just like in this illusion, that middle leg doesn't actually exist. It's just an illusion. It's a construct by our minds. It's the same with suffering. It's a construct that our minds have constructed. It's a religious or social construct. Once a year when the Tour de France is on TV, I will set up my stationary bike in front of the TV and I cycle while I'm watching. And I put on the yellow shirt and I pretend I'm cycling in the Tour de France and I'm winning. But it's not real. It's only in my imagination. And we can say the same thing about suffering. Suffering is only in our imagination. It's not real. It's just a social or religious construct. It's in our imagination. But really, there's no God in this universe. There's no purpose. There's no rhythm. There's no rhyme. There's no direction. We're just random, impersonal molecules bouncing around randomly in the ebb and flow of a random, uncaring universe. And so to answer this question, why do bad things happen to good people, this option would use this answer, things just happen. They're neither good nor bad, and people are neither good nor bad. Things just happen to people. But can we live as if this were true? Using this reasoning, cancer would only be a name. It's no different from good health. It's just that we called it cancer. Our society or our religion has taught us to call it cancer. But really, it's just random, impersonal cells multiplying randomly. Just spots on an x-ray. And the cancer cells are just doing what their DNA tells them to do. It's not a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's just a thing. The drunk driver killing your brother, he was just dancing to the tune of his DNA. He wasn't wrong. He wasn't evil. It's just what he did. And it's just something that happened. His random impersonal molecules collide with your brother's random impersonal molecules. The tsunami, well, that was just water molecules doing what water molecules do. It wasn't wrong, it wasn't evil, just something that happened in the ebb and flow of a random, uncaring universe. So there's no such thing as evil, and there's no such thing as good. No such thing as pain, no such thing as pleasure. It's all an illusion, they're just names. But using this logic, that love we feel for our daughter, well, that's just an illusion. It's just impersonal neurotransmitters in our brains. That grief we feel for our husband when he dies, that's just an illusion. It's just random, impersonal neurotransmitters in our brains. That longing for justice when a drunk driver kills your brother, well, that's just an illusion. That cry for mercy when innocents die in a tsunami, that's just an illusion. Random, impersonal neurotransmitters lighting up in our brain. It's just a name we've come up to describe what's happening in our brains. Now, this answer is logically plausible, logically consistent, but none of us live as if this were true. Our grief suggests there is such a thing as evil. Our pain is real, and that's why we cry out this is wrong. So, we're back to our four things. So, we have to keep number one, bad things happen, can we remove number two? Instead of saying, this is unfair, we could change it to, well, this is fair. Suffering is fair. Now, at our family holiday, when we go to the beach, our kids will play with their beach toys 
And I like to set up their toys near the water because that's exactly where the sand is just right. And my wife will say, oh, it's too close, it's too close to the water. The waves might come and sweep away their buckets and toys. And I say, no, no, you don't get it. This is where the sand is just right. Not too wet and sloppy, not too dry. This is perfect sandcastle making sand. But sure enough, the waves come, the tide comes up and the toys are gone. And just that look on my wife's face when she wants to tell me, this is your fault. But she can't say it because marriage counselling says you're not allowed to say that to your husband. <laughs> but I can see in her eyes, she's saying, this, this is your fault. And we can say the same about suffering. It's fair. We deserve it. It's our fault. It's karma. It's cosmic payback. And so to answer the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Answer, because they deserve it. But can we live as if this was true? To Jane, why did your sister get cancer? Oh, she deserved it. To John, why did your brother die in a car accident? Oh, he deserved it. To the 300,000 who died in the tsunami, why? They deserved it. But surely this can't be right. It gives us no comfort. And deep, deep, deep down, we know there must be more to the story than karma and payback. Jane's sister, John's brother of 300,000 in Indonesia, did not deserve to die the way they did. And that's what makes suffering suffering. It's unfair. If I play with a knife and I cut my finger off, I don't cry out, God, why did you let this happen? Because I know exactly why it happened. I deserved it. I'm to blame. But if I'm standing innocently waiting for a bus and a drunk driver hits me and I lose my finger, then I do cry out, God, why did you let this happen? Because it's unfair. So it's no comfort to try to say suffering is fair, and that's the point of Jesus' story. It's not fair. So we're back to our four things again. Maybe we can remove number three. Instead of saying God is loving, maybe we can change it to, well, God is not loving. Boys can be so cute, but they can be so cruel. They crush ants when they play with a magnifying glass. They torture insects. They catch flies. They tear off their wings. And maybe that's what God is like as well. He's powerful, but he's not loving. He's cruel. He's capricious. He tortures. And that's why bad things happen to good people. So the question, why do bad things happen to good people? The answer here would be, well, because God is a bad God. But can we live as if this were true? This will mean our destinies and the hands of a cruel but powerful God. And we can't stop him from doing bad things to us. This is actually the world of Greek mythology, where we are the tragic heroes who can't escape our fates. We are fated to a sad, tragic ending. And this is the world of fatalism, where we just have to say, such is the will of God, and we just need to get over it. But if this were true... This will stop me taking responsibility for my bad actions. Well, an evil God made me do it. And it stops me from initiating good actions. Well, what's the point? An evil God is just going to stop me. It actually robs me of my personhood, my free will, my moral agency, and my moral responsibility. Okay, so we're back again to our four things. We can't take away one, two, and three. Maybe we can take away number four. Instead of saying God is powerful... Maybe God is not powerful. And that's why bad things happen to good people. This is my younger son, Jonty. He's three. He's at a phase of life where he cannot take no for an answer. 
So a conversation will usually go like this. Jonty will say, please, Dad, can I have an ice cream? And I've done all the active listening courses uh, and conflict resolution courses, so I know how to deal with this question. I, my answer to Jonty is this. Jonty, I hear that you've asked me for an ice cream. <laughs> I understand you want an ice cream. I empathise. I too would love an ice cream. But my answer is no. No, because we have no ice cream. No, because all the shops are closed. No, because as much as I, as I would love to give you an ice cream, it is not in my power to give you any ice cream. And my three-year-old son will let that register for a few seconds, and then he, his solution is just scream even louder. But I want ice cream! He thinks it's a negotiation. You see, you can negotiate with a terrorist, but not a three-year-old boy. <laughs> now, the point is, I would love to give my son ice cream, but it's not in my power to give him ice cream. And maybe it's the same with God. He would love to take away our suffering, but it's not in his power to take away suffering. So in, all, in answer to our question, why do bad things happen to good people, our answer would now be, because God can't stop these bad things from happening. But can we live as if this were true? Why do we feel like God should do something about suffering? Because deep down in our hearts, we know that if God is powerful enough to make the world, He is powerful enough to take away suffering. And He is morally obligated to do something about our suffering. So we can't just take away the four things of the Christian worldview. We're still left with our four things. One, bad things do happen. Two, this is unfair. Three, but somehow God is loving. And four, God is powerful. And this is the great irony. Because we have a problem with bad things happening to good people, we're actually assuming all four of these things to be true. The fact that we are crying out, why God, why, is because all four of these things are true. So let's come to the final part of the talk now. What might be an answer? Why do bad things happen to good people? How can all of these four things be true at the same time? Well, maybe there's a fifth reason. And the fifth thing is this. God has a reason. If he's a loving God, if he's a powerful God, maybe he's got a loving and powerful reason. See, we cry out because our pain is real. We cry out because we know there's a personal God out there. But if there's a personal God out there, maybe we also have to trust that he's got a good reason for it. What is this reason? The Bible never tells us the reason, but gives us at least three little things to hang on to. Little thing number one, there's more to this than we can see. Now this is a picture of Table Mountain, Cape Town, South Africa. It's one kilometre tall, flat top, and almost a patroon drop on the edge. And this photo I found on the internet, but I have a photo that looks just like this, and it's of my wife Stephanie doing what that guy is doing, standing on the edge of Table Mountain. But my wife is doing more than what this guy is doing. This guy is standing like that. My wife is on one leg, leaning over as far as she can on one leg over the edge and she overbalances it's a one kilometre drop and you're thinking what on earth is she doing well the thing is we don't have the complete picture because where we took the picture it was a false ledge and just under her by about a foot was, was another long ledge and so my wife wouldn't really have fallen all the way see we didn't have the complete picture maybe this isn't the complete picture 
We don't have all the information. We've only got a few pieces. But God's got the whole puzzle. And that's the problem with suffering. We're only getting a few of the pieces. But God's got a bigger picture that we can't see. Uh, number two, there's another chapter still to come. And many of you have heard me use this illustration before. When I was 14, my uncle and auntie took me into the city to see The Empire Strikes Back. And I was so excited. I was in the city to see the sequel to Star Wars. But the movie ends badly. Evil triumphs. Darth is Luke's father. Luke loses his hand. Hand Solo is frozen. And that's how the movie ends. And I walked out thinking, what on earth just happened? Evil has triumphed. But no one explained to me that that was only the middle of a trilogy. There was another movie, another chapter to come. And that movie was Return of the Jedi, where everything is fixed up, where all wrongs are righted. And in the story of Jesus, people ask Jesus, hey, what about these religious people who were slaughtered by Pilate? What about these innocent people killed by a tower? Jesus hints in the rest of the Bible reading that there is another chapter still to come. God is going to come. There will be a day of reckoning. He will wipe away every tear and he will right all wrongs. But then Jesus ends with a punchline, which is a twist in the tale. Repent. Make sure on that day, you are on the right side of God. And then number three, as a Christian, we hang on to this. There must be a good reason for what's going on. In the meantime, we can ask, oh, why do you let bad things continue? I get there's a reason. What is this reason? The Bible never says. It only hints. Maybe God is patient, and that's what Jesus hinting. Maybe God is patient. But what the Bible does tell us is this. Whatever's God, God, whatever God's reason is, it must be so powerful, so loving, that even His own Son, Jesus, came into our world of real suffering. He suffered unfairly, died on a cross, and part of the reason why He did this was so we can be right with God, so when that next chapter does come, when the day of reckoning comes, when God wipes away every tear, writes all wrongs, we can be right with God because Jesus came and died for us. So our question today was this. If God is so loving, why do bad things happen to good people? But all comes down to this. We're juggling these things. If bad things are happening to good people and we have a problem with this, there must be a personal God that we've got a problem with. This universe is not impersonal. There must be a personal God. And that's why I have a problem with good things happening to bad people. But... If there is a God out there, and if He is loving and powerful, I have to trust Him that He's got a good reason for what's going on. But whatever that reason is, I don't know, but it must be so good. Jesus come and be part of my world of suffering. Why? So that one day, when God does fix all wrongs, I can be right with God. And the twist of the tale from Jesus is repent. Make sure we're right with God when that day comes. Now, in our first year away in America, my wife and I got news that my wife, Stephanie's grandmother, had just died. She was in Macquarie Shopping Centre, where she loved to go, and while she was there, she had a heart attack, and she died. And the hardest thing for Steph and me is that we weren't there with her when it happened. And we often imagine what it would have been like for Steph's grandmother to have been in the shopping centre, having a heart attack, and dying alone without any of her friends or family around her. And that's our worst fear. Not that just we suffer, but that we might one day suffer and die alone. And that's why we visit our loved ones in the hospital, 
in the birthing center, in the nursing home, so that they will not suffer alone, so that we can be with them in their suffering. And 2,000 years ago, God sent us His Son, Jesus, to die for us on a cross, so that we're not alone in our suffering. There is suffering, yes, but we're not alone. Jesus has come into our world and suffered with us. And from this cross, Jesus is saying this, trust me on this. I know what I'm doing. There's more to this. There's another chapter still to come. But when that day comes when God writes all wrongs, make sure we are right with God. And so Jesus says, repent. And that's exactly why he has come on the cross for us, so that we can repent and be right with God when that day comes. How is number five, God has a reason, different to God is working out good or bad? Um, I.e. the lemons thing. Sure, sure. Um, different from that as a Christian defence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so the way number five works, God has a reason, and this was uh, pointed out by Alvin Plantinger, uh, one of the American philosophers, that uh, those four things look logically inconsistent, like how can all four things be true? And Alvin Plantinger pointed out it's only apparently inconsistent because we add a fifth thing, a fifth premise, God has a reason, then there's no more logical inconsistency. So as you point out, at a formal level... Uh, the argument's not a problem. But at a material level, how can we survive? How can we um, work out, um, how can we trust that God has a reason? Well, this is where you have two forms of defence in the history of philosophy and theology. You have what's called a, um, a soft theodicy, a defence of God's character, or a hard theodicy, a defence of God's character, which is a, how can a good God allow suffering to go on? If you go hard theodicy, where... What you're trying to do now is say, God has a reason, and I'm going to tell you what that reason is. And that's what Christians try to do, and they might use the free will defense, amongst, and, and maybe God working good out of bad. A soft theology says, says um, God has a reason, I don't know what that reason is, and the Bible really doesn't give us one capital R reason uh, for, what, uh, for why God allows bad things to happen to good people. So I think the soft theology is the way I'm going. Uh, there are reasons. We're not sure exactly what those reasons are. The Bible gives us a few small hints, but if you try to use one as the reason in a hard theology, you're going to find there are a lot of problems later on, partially and philosophically. What's a theodicy? Uh, so a theodicy is a defense of God's character. So what you're going to find with a, this problem of why do bad things happen to good people isn't so much, okay, I have a logical problem with it. It's more of, I have a problem with God. I have a problem with God's character here. Can I trust, trust a God who lets these things happen? And that's what a theodicy is. It's a defense of God's character. And what we see is this is actually what happens in the Bible a lot. We, if you go and get the Bible, look at a book called Psalms, most of the Psalms have good, godly, holy uh, people saying, God, Why? Why? And it's a, it's a question of God's character. How can you let this happen? Why? And what the Bible does is it doesn't give us the reason for why, but it gives us the survival mechanisms for how to survive evil. So it doesn't say what, how, why suffering happens, but it tells us how we can survive suffering. And basically by, by trusting God and knowing that God is with us in our times of suffering. Okay. Any questions, Joe? Okay, I'll read the next one. Sure. Um, how do the three answers, uh, there's more to this than we see, etc., help Jane and John in the beginning of your talk? 
doesn't seem as flimsy as like the free will defence. Mm. So there's a whole extra dimension of this. It's not yeah. like the science. People are hurting. How yeah, does yeah. it help? Yeah, so how do, and I think it's a, it's a partial issue. How do we survive? How do we understand? How do we cope uh, with all the bad things? I think so the reason why the free will defence is so unsatisfying for people like Jane and John is you've given an unsatisfying intellectual answer and it sounds so cold, so detached and unfeeling. Whereas this other one is saying, you know, you're right. You're right. This sucks. This is wrong. This is unfair. This is indiscriminate. It's too much. You are so right. This is painful. I'm going to maximise how much you're going to run and minimise it. And, and understand, just realise, okay, right now we are in a, in a trust situation. How can I trust that, that, that there's a good God behind all this? And I think if we find partially, most people find that more satisfying partially than, than trying to give an intellectual, intellectually satisfying but very cold, detached reason. Okay. Here's uh, another one. Another, well, just, another story I often give is, is that the nearest parallel I can come up with is, and, I, and many of you have heard this before, is when you parent a child, one of the hardest moments is when you take your kid to the doctor for the very first time for their vaccination shots. And I can't remember exactly how old the kid is, but they're usually several months old, and by now they've built up enough trust in you, where by and large they've worked out you love them, and they are safe around you. So wherever you take them, they are happy, they are excited. Oh, great, we're going to the park. Great, we're going to the shops. Great, we're going you know, to the beach. They're happy. So then when you go to the doctors, they're happy. Wow, I'm with mum and dad. They love me. I'm safe for them. I'm going to the doctors. Wow. And that moment when you hand them over to the doctors, and they're still smiling. Wow, you know, this is going to be a beach experience, a shopping experience, a playground experience. And the doctor just gets that needle. Whack! Puts it in their thigh and injects the vaccination. And there's this stunned look on their face. <laughs> like, oh my goodness, what on earth just happened? Like that searing pain going on my thigh. And they look at you. They look at you like, you handed me over this doctor. Uh, how can I trust you? That look only lasts for one second and it's gone. And they start smiling again. Because they think again, no, you love me. I'm safe around you. I don't understand why there was this searing pain that ran up my thigh, but based on what I know about your character, I can trust you on this. And I guess that's what I've been arguing for in this talk, that we can, like, just like the child cannot understand what's going on in a vaccination shop, we can't understand what's going on right now. But based on what I know about God, his character, my experience with him, that he sent his son Jesus to die for me, he's adopted me as his child, if I love and trust him on this, I, I can get through this. Okay. Um, question, folks? All right, I've got uh, time for two more quick ones. Uh, Sam, even in a universe without God, mm. isn't there still suffering? Mm. There may not be good and evil, uh, but there's still suffering and pain, isn't there? Well, there, there is suffering and pain, but again, they're just arbitrary words that we've come up to describe the experience. And who are we to say that See, suffering already has a value connotation to it. Uh, so, and, and so already we've imposed a value construct upon something that is just happening. So if we're true and we're logically consistent and the universe is impersonal, everything that's happening is actually impersonal. Uh, and suffering implies there's a narrative, there's a purpose, there's a rhythm, there's a direction, and this is part of what's thwarting that. Uh, so to be logically consistent, there really is no such thing as suffering. It's just something that's happening. And, and again, to be logically consistent. So 
All we can do is describe what happens in the universe, and we cannot, we're not allowed to impose value upon value judgments upon things. This happens in anthropology, where we just describe what people do, but we're not allowed to say whether that's good or bad. And it's the same, to be true, if the universe is impersonal, and there's no rhythm or purpose or creator behind it, everything that's happening is just stuff that's happening, and there's neither good nor evil, pleasure nor pain, because that, again, is question being, why, why do you call this pleasure, this pain? I can't do the opposite. So again, why is cancer the bad thing? So, so you know, it's like, like your lawn, my lawn is full of buffalo, but that, that's, that's a weed. We just call it a lawn. Uh, that's why weed killers can't work on buffalo. They kill the buffalo. We call it a lawn, so it's an arbitrary thing. So what you call suffering could be pleasure in, in, according to the universe's design. And what's fascinating is when 9-11 happened, I was living in America when it happened, uh, Mary was just stunned. Because until then, we weren't allowed to describe any action as good nor bad, pleasure nor suffering. And Lance Morrow wrote in the, in the essay section of Time magazine, Straight up to Ireland says, we've got to call this evil. This is evil. I know we're not allowed to use that word evil because it's just what people do, but this was evil. And he wrote this big thing like, finally, can we reuse the word evil? Uh, and, but again, that implies, a value judgment implies there is a personal universe and there's a rhythm and there's a rhyme and there's a purpose in the universe. Hey, one more quick question. Yeah. Uh, can you expand on there is still another chapter to come. Mm. What is so good about the next chapter? Oh, okay, so there's another chapter to come. Well, it'd be like Return of the Jedi. There'll be Ewoks and there'll be writing more wrongs. Well, the Bible always says there is another chapter. So even the book of Job, where there's so much suffering, we think that book is all about, oh, okay, just grit your teeth, God, there's suffering. Job doesn't understand what's going on, but he's just got to trust God. Before Job to work, there's a final chapter where not only there's wiping of tears, writing wrongs, but there's vindication. So there are two, two notions of justice. And we understand justice means, you know, when a guy shoots a red light camera and there's a fine, that's justice. But there's another flip side to justice, and that's vindication, where the innocent and those who are right are finally vindicated. They are given positive justice as opposed to negative justice. So in that final chapter, not only will there be a wiping away of tears, a righting of wrongs, but there will be vindication for those who are trusted in Jesus. And so the path of Jesus is a path of suffering and then glorification, meaning uh, he's, he's finally who he's meant to be in all his glory. And it says for those of us, of us who trust and follow Jesus, we actually have the same path. We will follow him in a path of suffering, which we may not understand, but there will be a glorification chapter for us to come. Uh, where we find it to be who we really, really are uh, um, in, in, in all its fullness. Okay, one last question. Is yep. there something else, uh, as well as the Bible, is there something else we might want to read about this? All right, well, one of the simplest and easiest and best books out there, John Dixon. John Dixon, If I Were God, I Would End the Pain. If I Were God, I Would End the Pain. But if you love this at a philosophical, nerdy, wow, I can dive in level, John Feinberg, no one like him, he's got a middle chapter on the problem of suffering, and he's a philosopher, theologian, but his own wife has a horrible, debilitating neurological um, disease where she's just slowly, slowly dying. I want you to say the title of that book one more time, that's all you're allowed to say. John Dixon, If I Were God, I'd End All the Pain. Second John book. Feinberg, No One Like Him. The recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city, or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.